0: a variety of imagery is used by God in his word to help us understand the principles the obligations the prohibitions that serve our good and a common image is nautical terms having to do with ships navigating the sea here's one example In James chapter 3 and verse 4, Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. James in this context is writing about the tongue, our speech, and the discipline that we need to apply in what we say and in how we say it. Here's another in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 19, by rejecting this, that is rejecting the faith, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Paul was writing about people who abandoned the faith. There are many other examples of this kind of nautical imagery designed to help us understand principles, obligations, and prohibitions for our spiritual good. So you have already figured out, I'm going to take off from that with words that may not be directly related to nautical discourse or journeys, but this may be a memorable way to help us keep various obligations, and it could be said, keep our ships on course. So, I'm going to start with stewardship. Stewardship is an essential concept for us to get hold of and become engaged in. At the basic level, stewardship means we have been given responsibility. Something we are to hold, keep, something we are to do, to be engaged in. A trust that requires personal commitment. In James chapter 117, we often reference this statement, God is generous toward us, providing, it says, every good and perfect gift. Now, when you receive a gift, what do you do with the gift? First of all, we express our gratitude to the giver. Yes. Then, we keep that gift we use that gift, we engage in the possession of that gift in a trustworthy way toward the giver. So we are familiar with one of the stories Jesus told back in Matthew 25 about a man who trusted his servants to use what they were given. We call that the parable of the talents. A man trusted his servants To use what they were given. And then what is addressed in Matthew 25 is accountability for the stewardship. Do you remember this part of the story in Matthew 25, 21? Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we want to hear someday. Well done, good and faithful servant. This was what the master said in Matthew 25. To the two men who accepted their assignment of stewardship and used what they had to the best of their ability. Now there was another man. There was one man who took what was given to him and he took that gift and dug a hole in the ground and buried what had been given to him. That illustrates a failure of stewardship. I'm going to take you now to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm going to be reading verses 10 and 11. Peter is writing to suffering Christians. I want us to keep that in mind. People who because of their faith had been abused and had actually been scattered because of their activity of faith. Yet, though they were mistreated... And though they were suffering and scattered, still they had responsibilities. Listen to this in 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God... Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The principle here is use what you have received. Even if you live in hostile territory, even if you've been scattered, even if you are abused for the activity of your faith, the principle is use what you have received. Speaking, serving, use what you have received. And use what you have received for this purpose in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ this is stewardship and this was written to people who were not positioned in favorable living circumstances therefore we cannot argue that because everything and everybody around us isn't favorable and exactly to our liking we can back away from responsibility from stewardship no that argument finds no place in what the Bible says about faithfully using what god supplies and when you learn this from the bible when i learned this we need to apply it by considering what has been committed into our hands and then how diligent are we in using what has been committed into our hands so there's two parts to that what do i have what is god provided for me And what is my diligence about the use of what God has committed into my hands? What resources? What skills? What abilities do I have that can be applied to good kingdom use for the glory of God? Am I doing what I can with all I have? Am I doing all I can with all I have to the best of my ability, growing and making progress in the activity of my faith? Are we as a local church doing all we can with all we have as a spouse, parents, neighbors, co-workers? We need to keep this ship on course. Perhaps we need to get back on course Adjust our course, because stewardship is our task about which we will stand accountable before the Creator. Discipleship. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Matthew 10, 24 and 25. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? Those following Jesus needed to know what Jesus said here. He said, if I may paraphrase, if you follow me, if you're going to be like me, How they treat me will be how they treat you. If they deny me, they will deny those who follow me. But there's another part of this. It is so important to see in this text what could be called submission to a superior. That's the groundwork of discipleship. Submission to a superior. And the superior is Jesus Christ. See, you you could state it in, in these vivid terms. We don't tell Jesus what to do. He tells us. A servant is never above his master, never equal to his master, and certainly never above his master. Then may we see that being like our teacher is the objective. Now, that doesn't mean we can work miracles, But being like him in his moral qualities, being like him in his submission to God, being like him in his treatment of people, being firm and clear about the truth, having the burning desire to get people out of sin, energy applied in obedience reverently, and resistance against sin. And in that regard, may I take us to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. We are all familiar with Jesus' opposition to sin. That should be our determination. Our opposition to sin. Discipleship means following Him who is above us in every positive way, but also imitating His strong opposition to sin. Stewardship. Discipleship. We need to keep these ships on course. Swordsmanship. Swordsmanship. I'm going to take us to Hebrews 4.12, and then I'm going to take us to Ephesians chapter 6. There are so many important images in the Bible of God's Word, and here's one. In Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's the Word of God, the sword that pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. You want to examine what's in your heart, use the sword. Then in Ephesians 6 verses 10 through 17, where we are called upon to put on the whole armor of God. And you go through all of this about how you stand against the schemes of the devil. And you come to verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So swordsmanship. That's a ship that needs to be kept on course. By the way, you don't just pick up a sword and start swinging and stabbing and threatening. You have to know all about the sword. You have to know how to use it effectively. Now, where is that instruction? I mean about how to use the sword of the Spirit. It's located here. Old Testament, New Testament, how people responded to God's Word, how they used God's Word in their life, or maybe how they didn't use God's Word in their life, can be instructive to us about using this sword. Everything before Hebrews 4.12, everything after the passage, everything before and after the Ephesian text, in the example of Christ and the apostles, in all of that accumulated instruction about dealing with people, defending and contending for the faith, providing nourishment for people who are starving to death spiritually, we have a valuable body of instruction about how to use this body of instruction, the sword of the Spirit. Three things I want to provide for us to think about, just briefly, about using the sword of the Spirit. One, the sword of the Spirit is for us to use on ourselves. On ourselves. You don't study the Bible just to use that knowledge on someone else. We grow and make progress in our lives based on our contact. Our contact with God through His Word. Number two, the sword of the Spirit must be at our side all the time. Carry it with you all the time. If not on paper or your electronic device, carry it up here. And then number three, the sword of the Spirit means balance knowledge, not just a verse here and a verse there, but the big picture of God's plan. We may be very good at quoting verses. We need balanced knowledge and we need to know the context that surrounds the verses we quote. And may I add, we have a sword not just for display, not just to hang on the wall. We have the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, for use to kill sin in our lives, to respond to error. To encourage people. To cut away the brush and debris that gets in the way of righteousness in our heads. Stewardship. Discipleship. Swordsmanship. We must keep our ships on course. Fellowship. Think of fellowship as relationship. Think of fellowship as Relationship. I'm going to be in Acts 2 in just a moment. When you were baptized into Christ, you're giving up sin. You are entering a good relationship with God through Christ according to the instructions of the Spirit. That's a vertical relationship. Also, there is relationship with others who are Christians. And that can be considered the horizontal relationship. Obviously, the horizontal is based on the vertical. Several passages come to mind. In Acts 2, 42 to 47, we read this all the time, don't we? And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There was a family togetherness among these people who responded to the gospel. And in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 11, Paul said, Therefore, encourage one another. Sometime get a concordance and look up one another in the New Testament. It's all over the New Testament. And one is encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. John said, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Here is fellowship with God and shouldn't we be in good relationship with others? How do we keep this ship on course? We walk in the light. We unite with other Christians based on the word of God. We help and serve and encourage and build one another up. Now, one more passage I want to bring up about keeping our ships on course. In First Timothy chapter 1 and verse 19 Cling to your faith in Christ, one translation says, and keep your conscience clear. For some people have deliberately violated their consciences, and as a result, their faith has been shipwrecked. In this translation, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. In 1 Timothy 1.19, in the Christian Standard Bible, having faith and a good conscience which some have rejected and have therefore shipwrecked their faith. I read this and I think about Paul's shipwreck that you can read about in the book of Acts. Or you may think of the Titanic. And you imagine the thoughts of being on board a sinking ship plunging into the water to your death. But the point here is, we don't have to be a victim of a shipwreck in regard to our faith. With the compass and radar of God's word, we can navigate through the storms of life. We can pray and worship and study and read and be nourished by the word with our anchor sure and steadfast the hope that Mark talked to us about last weekend we can with all that help from God keep our ship on course if we desire to sail safely into the harbor that is eternal in our culture today we are facing strong headwinds of change forces of evil influences to compromise It is in our consistent and obedient walk with God as disciples of Christ that we are able to stay on course and help our brethren and our sisters stay on course. May that be our resolve. Let's be standing as we sing.